Chapter 2 of The Octave of Claudius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aaron Rivera. The Octave of Claudius by Barry Payne. Chapter 2. If Mr. Wycherley had taken his stroll over Wimbledon Common later in the evening, he would have had an opportunity to play the part of the Good Samaritan. There is no role which is more popular. The feeling of self-satisfaction and superiority help to make life enjoyable, and in consequence, it is delightful to rescue. But to be rescued is quite another affair. The thing which is condemned as ingratitude is often a very natural resentment of one who has been placed compulsorily under an obligation. Most men, given a certain number of sensitiveness, would sooner fall among thieves than among good Samaritans. The chance which Mr. Wycherley lost was taken by Dr. Gabriel Lamb. The doctor was returning home rather late. It was already beginning to get dark. When he was within a few yards of the garden gate of his own house, he noticed a young man lying in an awkward position on the grass by a roadside. Dr. Gabriel Lamb bent over him, found him half-conscious, and made a cursory examination of him. The young man was clad in a well-cut tweed suit, worn to utter shabbiness. His boots were in holes. He was lying where he had fallen when he had found he could go no further. His hat was off and had received from the fall a damage with which it was already familiar. His face was thin and at present quite colorless, but it had the tokens of refinement and strength. Dr. Lamb's examination lasted less than a minute. "'I shall be back directly,' he said, and began to run towards his own house. He was a middle-aged man. His head, save for a fringe of reddish hair all around it, was bald. But he was very active. He dashed up the garden drive and into the house where he gave one or two rapid orders to servants and hurriedly prepared what he wanted. In a very few minutes he was out on the roadway again, with a glass in his hand bending over the young man. The doctor's servants had accompanied him, and stood at a few yards' distance, waiting. The young man's eyes were half-closed when the doctor held the glass to his lips. He turned his head away impatiently. "'Drink it at once,' said the doctor sharply. "'Do you want to die?' The young man spoke in a faint whisper, and with some difficulty. "'Not a beggar. I'm much obliged. Very natural mistake of yours. I'd, I'd rather you left me alone.' "'I won't, then.' Whoever heard of such nonsense? Any man who is taken suddenly ill accepts help from the first stranger who is not too much of a brute to give it to him. It's no question of begging. Damn it! He went on, getting furious. You shall pay for the hayporth of brandy if you like, but drink it. The young man shook his head. No money, he murmured. That's why I'm... The effort at explanation seemed to be too much for him, and he stopped. All right, then, I'll take your clothes, or you shall work for me. At any rate, I promise you that I will put you under no obligation which you cannot repay. I swear it. Now then. The young man drank the contents of the glass. In a moment or two, his eyes opened wider. He looked reflective. That wasn't brandy, he said. His voice was already a shade stronger. Not brandy alone. There were other things in it. I'm a doctor, you know. Now do you see that house? The young man raised himself into a sitting position, looked at it, and nodded his head. That's my house, and I'm going to take you there with the help of my servant. Then you'll be put to bed. In a day or two, you'll be all right. 
Now, you must place yourself entirely in my hands and trust me. I'm not going to put you under any obligation. You shall work out your debt. You look like an educated man. Eton in Cambridge, but you couldn't believe it. I believe it entirely. Now then, you shall get up. Steady. There, that's it. Now, slowly. Supported, almost carried, by the doctor and his servant, the young man was taken into the house. It was a house which seemed to have an old quiet in it, a quiet that had been there long. The colors in the interior were low. It was lit softly, without glare. One's footsteps were not heard on the thick carpets. The house was of red brick, but the red had been softened and shaded by time, and the walls were partly covered with ivy. At the back of the house there was a modern addition, which Dr. Lamb had erected for his own purposes. It was a long, low building and had a separate entrance into the garden. The young man found himself in a large and very comfortable bed. At one end of the room there was a door into a bathroom. At the other end of the room communicated with a dressing room and a small study. Here, the doctor's servant did for him all that a valet could do for a man. Soon he was lying in bed, refreshed by a bath, soothed by the luxuriousness that he had missed so much and for so long, dreamily wondering whether it could be all true. He had suffered very much, and this sudden change for the better seemed so strange. He thought, half amusedly, that the doctor had done a foolish thing. He had taken into his house a man of whom he knew nothing, except that he had found him a mere vagrant, shabby and fainting from exhaustion and want of food. But the young man reflected that in the course of his life he had frequently been trusted like this, on sight. Certainly, in some way or another, he must repay the doctor. How? He could not imagine. It did not matter. The doctor had promised to find a way for him. But the doctor's kindness and trust were, he felt, beyond repayment. He began to wonder if they would bring him something to eat. He hoped so. The valet had left the lamp and the candles by his bedside alight, so it seemed certain that he would return. The valet had treated him with the utmost respect as an honored guest and not as a relieved vagabond. If he ever got any money, he would remember the man. Presently, the door opened and the doctor and the servant entered. The servant carried a small tray on which were a couple of chocolate and two sandwiches made of toast and some kind of meat jelly. While the young man was eating... He was ordered to eat slowly. The doctor sat down by the bedside and began to talk to him. At first he was merely medical. Then he said, My name, you know, is Lamb. I'm Dr. Gabriel Lamb. May I ask your name? Mine is Claudius Sandell. I don't really know how to thank you. Not a word, not a word, if you please. Words would certainly be of little good. I hope that I have not been keeping you from any other patients. The doctor smiled. Oh, I don't practice, he said. It was lucky for you, and I think it's lucky for me also, that you chose a Sunday evening for your collapse. I only walk on Sunday evenings, chiefly because it's not church. Ah, yes, quite true. There is a church also on Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, and on certain occasions in the week. My wife, to whom I hope soon to introduce you, attends every service. She also stays for the after meetings. You must not, by the way, think that I am an unbeliever. I am not. At one time, I always went to church on Sunday evenings, and there was much in it that I enjoyed. But the curates, banalytics, the superstitiousness of the people, and the perfectly evil singing of the choir vexed me. Then it occurred to me that if I went for a walk on Sunday evening instead, I could get the service without the church. 
I could have the sunset and the aspirations, the longing for the faraway that it produces. He stopped abruptly and noticed that the servant was listening with a rather puzzled face. He turned to him. Wait outside, Francis, he said. When the man retired, the doctor began to pace the room and went on talking. Under his very thick, sandy eyebrows and long lashes, his gray eyes grew luminous. Sometimes it's in the spring. Damn it, there's nothing like a spring evening. I'm in earnest about it. The poetry of it is so strenuous and yet so quiet, so full of fresh life and yet so full of the old peace that still passes all understanding. But it's always as the service of God that I take my Sunday evening walk. I love the lime trees, trees of the Pentecost. With their leaves turning to tongues of fires, they shake under the strokes of wind and sunlight. I love the cold purity of the sky on winter evenings that get dark so soon. How all the stars look at me. The heavens declare the glory of God. Ah, I'm talking far too much. Claudius was watching him with keen interest. No, no, he said. Go on. I'm beginning to understand. That really is all. Only on Sunday evenings do I walk, because it's not church, but it is service. The rest of my time is given to work. To work, doctor? But you said that you do not practice. Quite so, I do not, although when I was a younger man I had practiced for a time. It did not content me. One night I was rung up by a woman. I went downstairs and found her hysterical on the doorsteps. She pulled herself together and prayed me to come at once to see her son who was dying. She lived about a mile off. We ran a good deal. She was distressed, and I was sympathetic. When we got there, I found that the boy was not dying, but was slightly bilious. Then I asked myself if that kind of thing was science, as I loved it. If it really assisted the great cause of humanity for which alone I live. I gave up my practice. I study the individual man only when he's likely to throw light on the aggregate. I never work on behalf of the individual. But I tire you. No, I'm not tired. Pardon me, but you are. It is merely the effect of the restorative that makes you feel strong, and that effect will pass off. You are very much run down, and you need rest. You would perhaps like something more to eat. I shall not give it to you. Tomorrow you should be better treated. Good night, Mr. Sandell. Good night. When he got to the door, he paused a moment and said, Do the clothes you were wearing fit you perfectly? Very fairly. It's about all you can say for them. I've got thinner since they were made. That's all right. A tailor can make others from them, I suppose. It will save you the bother of measurements. Good night again. Before Claudius could answer, the doctor had gone. In the passage outside the room, Dr. Lamb was detained for a minute by the valet. Excuse me, sir, but I've seen this Mr. Sandell before. Where? At Cambridge. I was a jip at Trinity, sir, you remember, before I came to you. This Mr. Sandell was really there. It's quite true what he said. Don't make that mistake again, said Dr. Lamb somewhat impressively. When I told you a few minutes ago that Mr. Sandell was my guest, it ceased to be necessary for you to give him a character for truthfulness or sobriety or early rising or anything else. You will sleep in the dressing room in case Mr. Sandell should want you during the night. If he's unable to sleep or turns faint again, you know what to do, but he won't. I shall want you to go to town tomorrow for me. You must go early. I will give your orders immediately after breakfast. As Dr. Lamb was coming down the stairs, a carriage drove up to the door. Mrs. Lamb had come back from the after-meeting. She placed on the hall table two or three devotional books. Amongst them was her Bible, fastened by an elastic band and bulged with the sheets of written notes. She was rather a short woman, with dark hair and plain anemic face and ecstatic eyes. 
She looked very young, twenty years younger than the doctor. I'm late, she said to him, but I've been very happy, so happy. We had Mr. Catacomb, as usual, Elijah, and the Believer's Hope. Dr. Lamb looked at his wife and said nothing, then he smiled slightly. When he smiled, his thin lips showed rather large white teeth. She saw the smile, and a nervous expression came into her face. She appeared to be slightly afraid of her husband. They went into the dining room, and a small table supper was laid, and they both sat down. Mrs. Lamb said Grace audibly, while her husband stared pensively at a mayonnaise. End of chapter 2